Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If. Only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a It's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast that tries to do something different. A discussion between Jim Power and Chris Johns about the issues of the day, political developments, economics, finance, and anything else that takes our interest. How are we different? We hope our discussions speak for themselves. You are most welcome to our podcast. Hey, Jim. Uh, good to see you again. And I want to start today with a brief chat about your blog of the other day, which is up on our site. Um, to my chagrin, I have to tell you that uh, you've got amazing stats since that uh, blog was published. Um, your run rate is probably better than any of our other numbers. And um, as we know, those numbers have been good as well, gratifyingly good. But uh, your first solo written effort has um, taken top of the league table in terms of pure numbers of people reading it uh, in terms of audience reaction we've got tons of comments questions uh, people expressing their own thoughts about this so given how much interest your blog piece uh, has garnered I thought we could start today and perhaps open the discussion afterwards if we could just begin with a 30 second summary in your own words of why you thought it resonated with so many people and perhaps in so doing, tell us in three bullet points or less what it is that you're actually trying to say. Right, Chris, I went for a long walk on Patrick's morning and I was thinking about life and I was thinking about the second Patrick's day in a row um, in lockdown. Um, I'm about to have my certain birthday in a row in lockdown and um, I was just thinking about what's going on um, in this country. And then I look at in the United States, we have Biden promising to have every adult in the States vaccinated by the 1st of May and then life returning to normal the 1st of July. Uh, we have in the UK, you know, a headline in Sky News that morning saying that everybody over 50 would be on the brink of being offered a vaccine or is on the brink of being offered a vaccine. 
And then I contrast that with what's happening here. The vaccine rollout is absolutely dreadful. Um, and I think what really annoyed me more than anything else was Minister Patrick Donovan on the RT News the day before, uh, basically telling people they should wet the shamrock with water. Um, I have to say that really got under my skin. And it wasn't me saying anything about alcohol. And Different people have different views about the attitude of the Irish to alcohol. I'm not going to go there. Uh, but telling adults, mature adults, to celebrate Patrick's Day by wetting the shamrock with water really was extraordinary. So I, I put all of this stuff, I articula articulated all of this in a blog piece and um, it has resonated. Obviously, I'm getting a lot of feedback from people saying that I've said exactly how many people are feeling at the moment. And um, I last night, then I saw Ronan Glynn, the deputy CMO, um, basically saying that everybody needs to do a little bit more. Um, and that really annoyed me because what the hell more can we do? You know, should I stay in bed 24 hours every day? Uh, you know, I mean, the majority of sensible people are complying very well with this. Um, it is causing enormous economic pain, mental pain, social pain, health pain, you name it. Um, and yet they turn around and they asking us to do a little bit more. I'm just not sure what more the majority of us can do. So uh, what it all boils down to in my case is I'm very angry, I'm very disillusioned and um, with the ongoing lockdown you know, you really wonder where it's going to end up and I'm, I'm thinking back on something you said last autumn that it was clear that the Irish government had a policy of rolling lockdowns until eventually a vaccine would come to the rescue um, and that's exactly how things are materialising you know, there's no prospect of opening up the economy anytime soon uh, and we're, we're just going to have to have to live with it and at the same time the rollout of the vaccine program is pretty pathetic at an eu and at an irish level so uh it's 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 a tough place and i think i was just articulating as i say what a lot of people are feeling of course there will be people out there who will totally disagree and argue there's no other choice uh, but I think there are other choices, but there's absolutely no political bravery here whatsoever. And basically, unelected officials without any economic or business acumen in Neffet are actually driving this agenda. Yeah, I think the only thing I got wrong with that comment, actually, was the word rolling, because uh, we seem to have settled down into a very, very clear, very explicit strategy that we're locked down now until vaccination. And I want to come back to that in a minute. Um, but going back to your blog post, one of the things I wanted to clarify, if you like, or at least ask you about, were the responses that we got to it. And one or two of them were in the vein that um, they seemed to think that you were aligning yourself with some of those very high profile governors in the United States, for example, who never believed in lockdown in the first place, and have long argued and indeed followed policies of not locking down. And I didn't get that sense from your blog at all. I don't think you're aligning yourself with, with those people. So I, I, for one, wanted to clear that up and would be interested in your response to that. More generally, I thought that what you were 
trying to do was actually connect almost on an emotional level with people and, and essentially just um, a lockdown cry of pain. Um, you've all, you always obeyed the rules, as you said, and, and I know that you do. You quite rightly have asked questions about whether those rules all along have all of them made sense. More subtly, I think that you've also posed the question is whether or not those rules still make sense. Are these rules fixed for all time? And if, as data has come in about what works and what doesn't work, what works well, what is less necessary, should we have revisited some of those rules? And I'm thinking here, of course, about the stuff um, that most people, virtually all people, catch COVID, <clears throat> excuse me, indoors rather than outdoors, and other things like that. And I read up on the Black Death, believe it or not. That's how you know. That's sometimes how cheerful I get. Bubonic plague and and various other medieval plagues. And you know, Jim, there there are historians who say that during that people learned voluntarily, of course, that the way in which they could protect themselves was by staying at home, locking themselves down. But that some historians think that people got so cheesed off with doing that that they eventually ended up taking risks, saying, "Look, this isolation that we're suffering um, isn't worth it," and they emerged from whatever uh, lockdowns that they put themselves in and did take risks. People just couldn't take. Some people just couldn't take uh, all of the isolation. Uh, those are lots of questions and, and not all can be answered, but I think that was also central to your piece is that you are asking questions, difficult ones and ones that necessarily can't all be answered at once. But nevertheless, the important point is that they should be asked. And th another aspect of, of the responses to your post was that um, both you and I and lots of other people uh, approach saying things like this these days, sadly, with, with great trepidation because um, we, 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 we get attacked, um, and that's fine. You know, we're sticking our heads above the parapet, and that's, that, that's what happens when you engage in debate. But it's the nature of that debate that bothers me, certainly, and I think you too, is, is that a lot of the zealots come back at us with misrepresentations of what we say, say that we're actually not qualified and we, we're not entitled to ask these questions, and they make serial ad hominem attacks on us. They play the man, not the ball. I think you would agree that this debate is important to have, even if we can't answer all of the questions that we're asking. Yeah, Chris, the first thing I, I would say is that I am absolutely not siding with those various governors in the United States who never believed in COVID, um, who were anti-vaccine and all the rest. Um, I certainly believe that COVID is a serious disease. Uh, the statistics in terms of deaths are uh, tragic at so many different levels. And I also accept that certain activities do have to be restricted if you want to get this virus under control. But I think where I would have fundamental problems, and I've had these problems for quite a long time, is there has been no attempt made to try and assess on a risk basis different activities. Um, let's face it, in normal times, getting out of bed in the morning poses a risk. Getting on a bicycle and cycling into town here in Dublin poses a risk. Everything you do has risks attaching. Um, and likewise, in a COVID environment, there is nothing virtually that is risk-free unless you spend your 24 hours a day in bed and don't leave your house. Uh, but 
does that mean that we should just totally give up living, which is what we are being forced to do at the moment? Uh, no, it doesn't. I mean, I, I suppose as an avid hill walker, it really annoys me that the powers that be deem it safer for me to go into the local park on Patrick's Day with thousands of other people, which I didn't do, incidentally. But they would deem it safer to do that rather than go up into the Dublin or the Wicklow Mountains, which I can't go to because of the 5K restriction. So I, I just think the failure to assess risks, different activities on the basis of risk, um, I think is a major failure. And of course, the result of all of that is that people are totally peed off at all at this stage. So many normal, sensible people, compliant people have really had it at this stage. And um, I, I've so many people have said to me that if on April 5th, some of those restrictions are not lifted. They're just going to go off and do it and, and to hell with the consequences of being fined by the cops or whatever. Yeah, the way in which the police in many jurisdictions have behaved, I think, raises all sorts of questions. And while I'm sympathetic towards the, the tough job that they've got to do, I know that um, in the UK, for example, a large number of older people that I know that have been stopped and indeed fined by the, by the British police um, are suspicious that they are being targeted as being the most compliant and that they know that if they are issued with a ticket that they'll pay up. And I've had lots of older people say to me they don't target the younger people because they know the younger people, or at least they think some of the younger people, will just throw their tickets, their fines away and not pay up. And I actually, um, the other day, asked a retired judge in the UK about this and wondered whether somebody with that kind of a background had a perspective on this. And they were interestingly definitive. And they said, oh, yeah, the police are just driven by targets these days and that they will be targeting those people they know will get their numbers up, the, those numbers being the, the people that pay up, the people that actually do honour their fines. That's just one small example of the ways in which I think this um, lockdown strategy has, has gone off the rails um, and you mentioned others, in, in, including the the the, uh, the drive on the, the the forbidden outdoor activities, which there, there's no science behind any of that. One fundamental question that I think does need asking is why we are being asked to try even harder when Ireland has had the most stringent lockdown in the world on most measures, and uh, clearly, if we're being asked to do something else now. It reveals, along with a lot of other data, it hasn't worked. Yeah, I mean, I, I have two neighbours, uh, late 60s, early 70s, who play golf. Uh, basically, they haven't been able to go near a golf course for some months now, despite the fact it's a an outdoor activity, despite the fact there is very little social interaction, um, and yet they're prevented from doing so. So wh what are people meant to do? You know, there is a limit to how much people can take. And, and of course, I... I would also, and I'm I'm starting actually to think a lot more about um, the libertarian agenda, which <laughs> I never thought I'd go in that direction. But you look at, you know, I drive down to local village Sunday mornings to collect breakfast. I'm stopped by the cops, asked where I'm going, uh, and then asked what I'm having for breakfast. Uh, that's trying to lighten it, but still... Um, it is just a gross invasion of one's freedom and privacy. Um, and I would regard people like myself as an easy touch. You know, we will comply uh, if we're fined, we'll pay fines and, and so on. But the, the longer term issue here is 
um, all of the various rules and restrictions that have been imposed upon us over the last 12 months, uh, you know, what's to say that some years down the road when we have a different political system in this country or different parties ruling us that these sorts of rules cannot be invoked again in different circumstances um, i think we really need to be careful about where we're going in terms of these rules and regulations which are impinging on people's freedom and liberty i couldn't agree more jim i think that's an incredibly important point that you raise there and despite what what our critics might throw at us neither of us could be considered a libertarian wing nut but what actually happens in the future is incredibly important because I think that uh, authoritarian leaders in waiting will look at the way in which we've almost voluntarily placed all ourselves under house arrest and the way we've done it, um, this conversation is an exception perhaps, but the way we've done it with alacrity, um, without protest or without much protest uh, does have a dark side. And you're not the first person to raise this question. There was a, a very good article by somebody called Lord Danny Finkelstein in the London Times this week that raised this question. And he said that f future governments, or indeed the ones that we've got, but certainly more authoritarian ones that we've got, will see the ways in which it, it, it was just so easy for us to, to put ourselves uh, under lockdown. And in a different set of circumstances, a more sinister set of circumstances, those kinds of powers which we've freely given to these governments could be invoked again. And it, it, it is something that needs very, very careful watching. Chris, can I just ask you, as somebody who's based in the UK, um, where there is what looks like a pretty impressive vaccine program being rolled out, and you look across the water here in Ireland at how our vaccine program is going, I mean, what do you think are our are people like me being overly critical? Is it really easy just to criticise everything the authorities do uh, without providing solutions? How would you assess the way we're handling that situation? Well, there are two aspects to the vaccine rollout. Is it, the first is how many vaccines have you got? And one of the reasons why you haven't got enough um, in many countries, in fairness, not just Ireland, but the EU experience of the vaccine rollout started with the way in which the contracts were originally signed in the spring of last year. Um, and the, the basic difference between, say, the UK approach and the Israeli approach to the EU was that the UK and countries like Israel said, OK, um, how much do we have to pay? Here's a check and just get on with it. And they didn't get embroiled in negotiations over price and they didn't get embroiled over negotiations to do with product liability. The EU were concerned with both, and that's because they handed over um, you in Ireland and all the other 27 EU countries handed over responsibility of this to the European Commission, who frankly made a mess of it with, with, two consequent, with a number of consequences. The first was that it took ages for these contracts to be signed. In the early days of, of any vaccine rollout, like this one, there, there are going to be supply shortages because the capacity has to be built from scratch. So if you're last to sign the contracts, it's very, very simple. You're last in the queue. And that, that explains a lot of it. But there's also the point that if the people that handed the money over early and committed to buying these vaccines meant that capacity was built accordingly. So the companies involved in, in uh, making the vaccines 
built production facilities according to what they thought the demand was going to be. There are other factors as well. You know, you can't scale production infinitely, but money helps. And if the, I think that if these companies have been given even more money at the start to build even more factories to build this stuff, uh, the supply shortages arguably would have been less. So there was less vaccine to go around and you were last in the queue to get it. So um, I think the EU in particular, but the countries that comprise the EU and handed over this decision to people who didn't know what they were doing um, are culpable. In Britain, it was handed over to a bunch of venture capitalists, one in particular, who did understand the nature of contracts, the nature of negotiations and the importance of speed. Because this is the other aspect of handing something over to Europe. Who, who um, The way Europe does things is, is, is always slow. It's always bureaucratic and it's always rules based. And we've seen that with respect to the debacle over once they got their hands on the AstraZeneca vaccine, what happened next? And we'll talk about that in a second. So I do think that the, the first aspect, you haven't got enough vaccine. That is what it is now. And there's, there's, there isn't very much you can do about that other than phoning Joe Biden to ask for some of his spare Astra vaccine, which now appears to have gone to Canada uh, and Mexico. The second factor, which I know less about, is the extent to which logistically the vaccine that you do have, is it being rolled out quick enough? Do you have enough people sticking it in people's arms? Do you have enough vaccine centers? Do you have enough vaccinators? And we just haven't got the data to be able to answer that question. The speed of what you've got, how quickly is it getting into people's arms? I noticed a few weeks ago a, a headline in the Irish Times suggesting that the armed forces in Ireland were being deployed to help with border control, border quarantine, um, and all things to do with that. Here in the UK, I was vaccinated by a, mem by a member of the armed forces, an officer for, from the Royal Navy, actually, where, where, the arm, where lo logistics were recognised early on. It was important to get whatever vaccine the UK has into people's arms. So, as I say, an officer from the Royal Navy uh, vaccinated me, and it was done incredibly smoothly. My appointment was on time. Um, and it, was a, a, it wasn't quite literally a, a painless process. I think that that brings us on naturally to talking about the most recent problem with the vaccine, which, and in particular, the AstraZeneca vaccine. Um, and as we speak, the, the headline, in, as we speak, the headline is the, in the Irish Times is that the, there is an update due on resuming use of AstraZeneca vaccine. And my take on this is that... Um, First of all, the decision to suspend the use was ludicrous. Um, it wasn't a scientifically based decision. I strongly suspect that politics had a big role to play there and that um, the decisions made by countries like the UK and Canada not to suspend it because of the evidence such as it was on um, blood clots wasn't a sufficient risk to, uh, to, to suspend. Lots of people said, including in Ireland, that the precautionary principle is the one that should be followed. And I would reject that totally. In a pandemic, you do not apply the precautionary principle. You follow a risk-based approach. How many lives will we save for certain when it comes to vaccinating people versus maybe possibly potentially having a problem with, with blood clots that may or may not have occurred naturally anyway? So I do think that it's not been a scientifically based decision. And I suspect that it, it might be... Um, might be political. Um, and then, of course, we now have the, um, uh, some countries have resumed already using AstraZeneca following the EMA decision uh, to say that it's still safe. Ireland is one of those countries, as I say, where we, 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 do, we, we don't know. It's an update. And that speaks to that European 
slowness, bureaucratic approach, which says this is the way we always do this. It's a business as usual. There's nothing to see here in terms of process. This is the way we do things. And if we had effective leadership, we would be saying, actually, no, it's a pandemic. This is not business as usual. We need to do things differently now in order to maximize saving of life and reducing the risk of serious illness. And we need to get this vaccine deployed. But I say, as we speak, Ireland is still deliberating on on resuming use of Astra. I assume they're going to approve it immediately, but already it's taking, they shouldn't have taken this decision to suspend it in the first place, in my view, and they're taking too long to resume it. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you've hit on something there about, you know, in this country, there is a distinct lack of urgency uh, regarding the whole vaccine rollout, we've seen ministers and others, the head of the HSE in photo shoots announcing the opening up of vaccine centres and so on. But yet it's not been backed up by any sense that this thing is urgent. And if people only realised that, well, people do realise it, actually, the longer this goes on, the longer we're going to be locked down. And I have to say personally Um, If an announcement is made prior to April 5th that they're just going to extend level five restrictions out probably till the end of June, um, I'm just not sure how I I will react to that. Um, I I find it an absolutely depressing specter at at this stage. And um, I, I think people will really, really react very badly. And in fact, I and this was, I suppose, another key theme I had in the overall piece I blogged yesterday was about there there comes a stage when these things start to be counterproductive. You know, the law of diminishing returns starts to set in and people's behavior starts to move in the other direction. And suddenly you have a worse problem. You see, observing people's behavior, um, a certain element of people will do the right thing they will behave in a safe manner if we if we're allowed outdoor dining or even indoor dining you know we will wear masks we will sanitize we'll keep social distance etc but then there are of course others who will uh, flout everything and i think everybody is now being pushed in that direction so many sensible people compliant people have just said to me in recent days that they really not sure how long more they can keep this up. They've they've reached a breaking point, um, and it's it's interesting, Chris. You 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 mentioned a little bit earlier on about um, how dangerous it is to talk about this and discuss it and debate it. Um, I was on the Brendan O'Connor show on RTE a few weeks ago, where I was talking about the lack of a risk based approach to different activities. Um, and I wasn't saying the whole country needs to be opened up immediately, but a columnist in the Examiner, a newspaper that I write for myself on an occasional basis, um, had a real go at me and saying, what do you expect many economists? They drag him out to tell us to open everything up again. I never said that. So uh, it's, 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 we discussed this in our last podcast in the context of Europe and the EU. Um, and I think you can say the same thing here. There is an element of religious fundamentalism here. And yeah, um, it's, I, yeah. I think it comes down to a quite fundamental question about state capacity and that point that I promised to come back with um, when it comes to the strategy of Ireland and indeed other countries of essentially now just locking down until until there's a vaccine. Whether or not you think other strategies should have been followed, whether or not you think it could, the policies of lockdown could have been more nuanced. And I think that's our point, is that it's not that the principle of lockdown was wrong, but it's been applied in a very blunt 
and frankly thoughtless way and hasn't responded to emerging evidence. But people have confidence or not in their ability of their leaders to deliver. A whole a fundamental point about about state capacity is that um, that it's about leadership, and there are various qualities of leaders that are incredibly important. But a pretty fundamental one is that they are competent, that they can deliver. So if you have a strategy of lockdown until the vaccine is it ha- comes to the rescue, it behoves you from a competence aspect of leadership to be able to deliver on the second part of that. They delivered on the lockdown, but they haven't been able to deliver on the vaccine for reasons that we, we have just rehearsed. So I think that it it raises fundamental questions about state capacity. And if people are asking whether or not our leaders are, are competent or not, that has all sorts of issues going forward, not least that power gets handed to people who will claim competency. Yeah, I think that's what really puts me into a dark place in relation to all of this. Um, I just do not have any faith in the competence of our political leadership at the moment to actually do what needs to be done. And ongoing lockdown is the only it's easiest solution um and and the second thing that really feeds into this narrative i think is the communication both from nefed and from um government and also from other various health experts that are dragged out uh, the communication is dreadful i mean ronan glynn telling us last night uh, every individual needs to do a little bit more i mean that sort of stuff pushes people over the edge and it's, it's trying to generate a sense of fear uh, that is totally counterproductive. So I, I would say quite categorically, um, from a personal perspective, I have very little faith and confidence that actually our authorities are capable um, of delivering a solution here other than ongoing lockdown of the economy. And, the, and there is no concept of the longer term implications for health, for the economy, for mental health, um, and for society generally. So I I think huge mistakes are being made. Yeah, I agree. Um, All that said, of course, um, everybody will get there in the end. Eventually enough vaccine will be produced and enough vaccinators will be found to get it into all of our arms. And the question arises then, will these delays be remembered? And I think the uh, point that you're making there is that they will, and that there will be a political price to pay. And it will be very interesting to watch that. Um, Just moving the discussion on, um, a well-known medic um, has pronounced uh, today on um, some economics. Now, as as economists, Jim, we're well used to people telling us that all that we've just said about vaccines, epidemiology, and the rest, that we're unqualified and that we're not allowed to make these sorts of remarks, not allowed to ask these sorts of questions. So we've got a prominent medic today saying something about inflation and interest rates, which you and I, at least, would claim that we do know something about. Dr. Leo Varadkar has said that um, inflation is a bit, and I'm paraphrasing here a bit, is inflation is like a bus, and, and eventually it'll turn up. And um, he's also said that economists aren't paying enough attention to this. What do you think of that? Uh, I, I thought it was bizarre, actually. And uh, it was a story in the front page of the Irish Times today. And they made reference, they put in some of the key points, the headlines, and they made reference to an interview Mr. Varadkar had done with the Irish Times. So I searched the main paper and the 
business section and I searched online to see if there actually was an interview where he did elaborate further on those issues and I failed to find it. So I can only take at face value what was reported. You know, for example, he says that he fears the impact of higher inflation on the Irish economy, especially if it pushes up the cost of borrowing. Um, He must realize that even if Irish inflation went to 30% in the morning, the European Central Bank wouldn't do anything about it. There's nothing that happens here domestically that's going to influence European Central Bank interest rate policy. Um, And I think he's also, um, you know, ignoring the fact that for 20 years, there's a structural problem of deflation rather than inflation in Europe. Um, And he obviously believes that is about to change. Um, I I don't share that belief. I think we're going to get a little bit of inflation, uh, but it's it's highly unlikely we're going to get into an environment where inflation takes off and where the European Central Bank starts to tighten interest rates aggressively. And I think he should also recognize what the National Treasury Management Agency is doing. And I checked this morning, the average maturity profile of Irish government debt is now 10.9 years. Okay, 10 years, nine months. So, uh, you know, even if bond yields do rise in the morning and that bus arrives, uh, you know, it's not going to have much impact on us because we, we have strategic funding in place at the moment. So a quite extraordinary intervention, I have to say. Yeah. And of course, we both know that the inflation is not like a bus. It just doesn't turn up because it hasn't arrived for a while. There are reasons why inflation happens and we have a pretty good handle on that. And to say that economists are not paying any attention to this suggests that Mr. Varadka is, is not paying any attention to what's been happening, particularly in the United States, where the most extraordinary, loud and um, extensive debate is going on concerning the inflation consequences of A, a US economy that's already on fire. We, we, this week, we've had various indicators. I, I'm thinking of an old one from our past, Jim, the Philly Fed survey yeah. of um, manufacturing activity was the strongest, um, I think, since the early 1990s, um, if not if not longer. And uh, Joe Biden's stimulus, which you and I have talked about extensively on this podcast, and it will no doubt come back to, is, is pouring petrol on this fire. The US economy is growing very, very strongly, and that could potentially set up inflationary processes, not a bus, it, it has to be said. And um, that's where the debate is. It's loud, it's extensive, and different people have different views. You and I share the view that there will be some inflation coming through. It's unlikely to be sustained, but it's all about the states. There's no inflation in Europe, for goodness sake. And given the lack of a Europe, we don't say the European economy is on fire, and we do not say that the fiscal authorities in Europe are pouring economic petrol on that economic fire. Um, so the idea that there could be a European inflation problem is absolutely ridiculous. German bond deals, for example, um, are still negative. Go ahead. Uh, yeah, it, 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 it brings me back to a point I made earlier on about communications. I mean, why would Mr. Varadkar get a headline on the front of the Irish Times saying that people need to start worrying about higher interest rates? I, I mean, think he's. I think he's missing being T-shirt, Jim. Probably is, but are they really trying to scare the living daylights out of people? You know, people are in a bad enough place at the moment, given what's going on with the lockdown regime in place, 
and suddenly he's, he starts to pick this thing out of the sky that is non-existent, that interest rates are suddenly going to start rising and that we're all in serious trouble. I mean, I, I just don't know what planet these people live on, to be perfectly honest. So far removed from the reality of how people feel at the minute. Uh, disconnection from reality is how I would describe it. Yeah. And as I said, <clears throat> excuse me, the, the to suggest that we're not talking about this in financial markets is is equally ridiculous. There's been lots of gyrations in U.S. bond markets, U.S. equity markets that have spilled over into our equity and bond markets this week, um, and uh, that's going to be ongoing. And it's something that I think that you and I are going to return to on this podcast, talk a little bit more about financial markets and what it means in particular for ordinary people. But Jim, I think unless you've got anything else that you particularly want to say, that's probably it for today. Thanks very much. And um, I hope you have a great weekend. And you, Chris. Thank you. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power. We aim to provide an independent take on economics, politics, and anything else that takes our fancy. Thank you very much for listening, and we hope to have you on board again very soon. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.